Good morning, everybody. What beautiful weather. Man, we were out last night with, with our small group. We went down to uh, Troy, Illinois, and we went through the Messiah's Mansion exhibit, which is the, uh, it's, a, it's a life-size model of the tabernacle. And we expected that it would be hot and humid because it's all outside, and it was gorgeous, right, Bob? By the way, that was really fun and very entertain, or very informative. So if you've got any curiosity about the tabernacle, it's there for another week. It's easy to find. It's totally free. How many of you guys were there last night? Because it wasn't just our group. It was good, wasn't it? So I'm plugging what the Methodist Church is doing in Troy, Illinois. It's pretty good. Go check it out if you get a chance. So my name is Alan. If you're new to us, if this is the first time that you've been here, maybe you're just checking us out on Facebook Live, we are in a series of lessons called The Truth About Lies. So we're in this series of lessons called The Truth About Lies. And if you haven't been following along, if it's new to you, if you haven't caught all of them, let me highly encourage you to go back and listen to all the lessons because they sort of build on each other. Um, what we've been learning is how to spot lies and how to deal with them. What we've been seeing in the Bible is that there is a common source of lies, the devil. Jesus called him in John 8, the father of lies. There's a common strategy that's being deployed, and it's being deployed in a predictable way. It's, the devil has been using lies, still uses lies. It's his go-to methodology to target the ideas that we have about the three biggest questions in life. Those three biggest questions are, who is God? Who am I? And what's the good life? And the devil likes to change and corrupt the information we have to make it not about reality, but about a lie, not about a fantasy, so that he can mess with us, so that he can help destroy us, because he has been a murderer from the beginning. The first two lessons were kind of a big picture to try and talk about all of that. Doing that, what we're hoping to do is to learn how to see his strategy See, we can't possibly cover every lie. We don't even know all the lies that are out there. But what we figure as we go through this series is if we show you how Satan is working, showing from the Bible what he likes to do, how he likes to do it, and show you how it turns up in everyday life and in our walks, then it gives you some tools to begin to be able to see his strategy as he tries to deploy it against you so that you can stand firm against the devil's schemes like we're told to do. But it's also a very difficult series. What makes it so difficult and why the devil uses this strategy so effectively is so many times lies sound true. We don't fall so much for the wildfire lies that are easy to spot. It's hard, though, when they sound true. And the best lies are the ones that actually have the most truth in them. They're maybe true enough until something goes wrong. And then we find out that, oh, I've stood on something that I shouldn't have stood on. For instance, as Christians, we sometimes use different cliches that we think are true and even helpful. Can you think of a few? Not all of them are wrong. Some of them are right. But some of them aren't completely true. They sound good, but they can actually cause some problems down the line. 
when we use them, we do it, I think, with good intentions. We do it to comfort in difficult moments. But whenever they prove to not be completely true, they can do a lot of damage when they're not reliable. So today we're going to look at one of those. One of those cliches. And here's the cliche. You ready? It's on the notes. God won't give you more than you can handle. Now that one sounds good, doesn't it? I I wish that was completely true. But did you know it isn't in the Bible? It might have come from 1 Corinthians 10.13. Because 1 Corinthians 10.13 sounds a little bit like this. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10.13. Paul says there that no temptation has overtaken you except what's common to mankind. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God won't give you more than you can handle. Is that what this verse is saying? Did you notice that this verse is about temptation, not about hardship? When do we most often hear that phrase? Or when are we most often likely to tell somebody God won't give you more than they can, you can handle? Is it when they're facing temptation or when they're facing trouble? Trouble and hardship. Is this verse about trouble and hardship? No, it's about temptation. Right up front, you need to know that God doesn't give you temptation. God doesn't tempt anybody, and he can't be tempted. That's what we find out in James, I believe, one thirteen. This verse also says there's a way out of temptation. Is there always a way out of hardship and trouble? God won't give you more than you can handle. might sound like this verse in some ways but it's actually a twisting of this verse. And if you've had any experience with verses being twisted, that can do a ton of damage. We try to give you the truth, but we want to be very careful that we don't add to or take away or spin or twist a verse to put our flavor on it. We want to see what God says, not what a preacher or a Bible teacher says. To plant a deceptive idea. That's his strategy, right? Deceptive ideas? Well, number one, let me suggest a couple ways. What if God didn't give it to you? What if the hard thing that you're going through, the trouble that you're going through, the suffering that you're experiencing right now, didn't come from God? You know, God doesn't always, hardships don't always come from God, do they? Sometimes we create them. Isn't that true? Sometimes they're created by somebody else for us. It isn't always God that gives us to us. Well, what's the problem? If we're thinking that the trouble that we're facing is coming from God, this can attack God's credibility. Well, here's the second problem. What if you can't handle it? What if you can't handle it? How many, how many of you right now are a little bit bothered with hearing me say or suggest that there might be something that you can't handle? As Americans, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I don't like anybody telling me I can't handle something. Right? It feels like an attack. Or or like I'm supposed to be able to handle things, right? But what if you really can't handle it? You know, people break. People can break, can't they? From torture, 
Someone can be tortured. We know about that in our world. And people can be broken. It's not just torture. Sometimes it's too much tragedy. Too many hard things weighing down. And you can watch a person break from hardship. And sometimes it's just too much of a good thing that can overwhelm and push you beyond your ability to handle it. I heard a story, actually I was reading a book about, uh, well, about this topic. And the guy was talking about a couple that he knew that wanted to have children. They, they were having trouble having children. I, I think the story is that they were having trouble having children. So they decided to adopt. And then once they adopted one child, they saw the need of so many children, they started to adopt more. And then they had some kids. And then there were some people who started saying, hey, could you adopt this one? They ended up with 21 children. Is that more than two people can handle? I would say that is in above your head. Is that a bad thing? No, the children are a blessing, right? But then you find out as you read their story that not every child was equally prepared to live in this world. Some of them had some difficulties. Some of them didn't want to be Christians or anything to do with Jesus. Some of them, you you get where I'm going with this. People can break. Well, what if you find yourself in a situation that you really can't handle and you're over your head? But somebody has told you God won't give you more than you can handle. And there you are. My understanding of who I am and who God is can be challenged, right? Maybe even redefined. So the devil's strategy is to plant deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. I think in this one, self-reliance and blaming God are the deceptive ideas that are actually tucked away and hidden inside this cliche, this lie, that God won't give you more than you can handle. And I think that pride is the disordered desire Pride and self-reliance are the disordered desires that these lies play to, these deceptive eyes play to. Let me ask you, have those ideas, blaming God and self-reliance, have they been normalized in our society? Yes, they have. Okay, so does this have the devil's fingerprints on it? Yeah, I think it does. Okay, if that's his strategy, where is he trying to deploy it? And I put it in your notes last week and gave it to you. Again, the idea here isn't to give you a lecture just for one morning, but to give you some tools that you can use, learn from this case study to apply it in other areas. I want us to start looking for the devil's strategies, looking for the lies. And one of the ways to see them pop up is to see is it targeting one of the three big questions of life. So on your notes... I've got the three questions there for you with a a blank beside it. Which one of the three do you think this idea that God won't give you more than you can handle, which one of these three is this appealing to? What about the first one? Who is God? Is that being targeted? I think yes, because it makes me want to ask, if I'm in a situation that I can't handle, a hardship I can't get out of, I can't handle it. And I believe that God gave it to me. That I'm going to be asking, is God really good? If he's good, why did he give me this? When my wife was diagnosed with MS, 
I struggled with this question. Is God really good? You know, and, and the next question was, well, who am I? What's wrong with me? Why can't I handle this? Because if you were around me in those days, those early days of that diagnosis, and I'm just sharing my particulars. You guys have had your own version of this, right? But when this first came out, I don't think I handled it well. If you were around me, I had a, a, another preacher down the street who was talking to me. He showed me Philippians 4. And he said, let your gentleness be seen by all. And I, I knew I wasn't being gentle. And for anybody here that I was not gentle with in those days, I'm really sorry. That verse did get a hold of me. But now I also understand there was a lie that was planted inside me that I had swallowed, which is I'm supposed to be able to handle something because God gave it to me. It didn't help me out too much. Number three, what is the good life? And see, I think that one's getting targeted with what God, God won't give you more than you can handle. I think that one's targeting what is the good life too, because if this is the good life, is it really good? Is this really what God had in mind for me? A lot of times Christians, we become Christians thinking that it's all going to be up and to the right from here on in. Now my problems, God's going to solve my problems, and He's going to give me something better. And then we find out that no problems still come our way. Okay, so what is the truth that I should believe? If God won't give me more than I can handle is a cliche that isn't true, what should I believe? I think maybe we should believe God won't give me more than I can handle through Him. The best lies are the ones that have the most truth in them. You add two more words to this sentence, all of a sudden it starts to ring true with Scripture, and it changes literally everything. Will God allow me to face more than I can handle on my own? Has God allowed you to face more than you can handle on your own? Yeah, absolutely He will, but He will not allow you to face more than you can handle through Him. That is true. So what we're really talking about here is the role of suffering and hardship in the Christian walk. It's one of the thorniest of all questions. Why does God allow good people to go through hard things? To suffer unfairly. All people face trouble. You know that, right? Job is possibly the oldest written book in the Bible. It doesn't appear first in the, in the canon, but some scholars think it predates even Genesis. And in Job, they knew back then, in Job 5-7, they made this statement, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. I've been doing some, some landscaping work around my house, and some of the materials that I've had have come in on pallets. I decided to burn those pallets in my burn pit. I think I might have damaged my tree, my maple tree, which is like 25 feet away because the fire that <laughs> came off that and the sparks are just going up and they're flying everywhere. I'm like, mm, maybe I should have thought about this a little bit more before I did it. But it's the truth, isn't it? If you're human, you're bound for trouble. That's common to all of us. Man is born for trouble as surely as sparks fly ever, upward. 
But not everybody profits from trouble. Only Christians can do that. Only Christians can profit from trouble. As a follower of Jesus, I can do more than handle hardship and suffering through God. I can actually profit from them. Do you believe me? I'm going to attempt to show you why I believe this is true and why you should believe it too. i got three reasons. I can handle hardships through Him and profit from them when I, number one, see hardship as training. Ever looked at something wrong? Thought it was a problem when it was a blessing? I think that's a common occurrence to most of us. How you look at something can change what you believe about it. How do you look at hardships? Do you see them as punishment? Unfair? Undeserved? A curse? Or do you see them as training? Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 14, the Hebrew writer said this. He says, endure hardship as discipline. Now that word, discipline, is the Greek word paideia. It's a specific word. And it wasn't just a word, it was actually a term. It was a word that, that had a whole, a whole meaning to it that everybody in Paul's day would have understood. It's a term that referred to the rearing and education of the ideal member of the state. It was a training curriculum that was intended to tutor, to educate, to shape and to mold someone so that they could fit into the society in the best way possible, what it did not mean is it did not mean punishment. How do we think of the word discipline? Yeah, typically we think of it as punishment, right? So when we're dealing with hardship, how many of us naturally think, what did I do wrong? Why am I being punished? I mean, there are times that we go through hardships because we did do something wrong. But sometimes it wasn't about us. Sometimes it wasn't a matter of us doing something wrong. And the writer of Hebrews says, when you're encountering hardship, endure it as training. He goes on, he says, God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everybody undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, We have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Do you look at hardships the way that we just read about? If you do, you'll see hardship as training. See, if you're, this is what this, the Hebrew writer is saying, is if you are God's child, He's going to train you. He's going to train you for something special. 
Because he wants you to share in his holiness. You saw that in that verse, right? That's verses 8 and verse 10. Holiness is a big deal. It's a huge deal. What do you think holiness is? Well, I've got three things to help maybe dial it in a little bit. Number one, holiness isn't moral perfection. Not biblically. I mean, a lot of times I've heard, you ever heard the phrase, well, that person is holier than thou? You know, or he's too holy. And, and we're, usually we're talking about moral perfection, right? But did you know that in the Bible, well, where we were at last night looking at the tabernacle, they didn't draw attention to it, but there were specific utensils that were made to carry out the sacrifices and all the work inside the tabernacle and the temple. Did you know that those utensils, inanimate objects, were holy? Well, inanimate objects aren't morally perfect, are they? Holiness is not about being morally perfect. Holiness is actually being set aside for a specific purpose. Holiness is being set aside for a specific purpose, and hardships train me for that purpose. Holiness is a big, big deal, and it's worth it. Verse 14 says it's the only way for us to actually see the Lord. I believe that there are ways that we can see the Lord now. Not with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes. How many of you guys remember the old song from the 70s, Have You Seen Jesus, My Lord? Yeah, there's a great verse in that. I mean, all the verses are great. Have you seen Jesus, my Lord? He's here in plain view. Take a look, open your eyes. He'll show it to you. Without holiness, without being set aside for this special purpose, you'll never see Jesus. Not in this world and not at the end of this world. Not in the next night. So I ask you again, how important is holiness? How much would you pay for the ability to see Jesus? Would you pay the hardship that you're going through? When you look at it like that, all of a sudden, hey, if that's what this is purchasing, I'm in. Being trained by hardship allows us to share in God's holiness and it brings a harvest of righteousness and peace. As I've been working on learning to see my hardships, and I'm not perfect at this, I've identified some hardships as training and I still struggle with what I, how I look at some other hardships. But some of the bigger ones that I've been able to see, wait a second, God is training me. He's allowing me to go through this because He's making me more like Jesus. He's allowing me to share in his holiness. What comes out of that is I become more focused on righteousness. Dikiosune is the, is the Greek word. It means what God requires and what pleases him. And I get more excited about righteousness and what comes out of it is a sense of peace. Did my wife's MS go away? No. It's not going away. It's been with us for over 20 years. It's not going anywhere. But I have more peace about it now. And peace is better than an absence of problems. Holiness is worth it. 
See, I can handle hardships through him and profit from them when I see hardship as training. And I realize that that training is bringing about holiness, righteousness, and peace. I can also handle hardships through him and profit from them whenever I stop relying on myself. This one is hard. Everybody deals with self-reliance and pride. I don't think there's a one of us in here that's exempt. We're all on the scale somewhere. Some of us are worse with this and some of us are better, but we all have issues with it and take comfort because the Apostle Paul had issues with it too. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9, he said this. He said, we do not want you to be uninformed as brothers and sisters about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. I believe he's talking more specifically about Ephesus because Ephesus was in the province of Asia. But he says, we were under great pressure, and catch this, far beyond our ability to endure. Will God give you more than you can handle? Yeah, and he gave Paul more than he could handle. And he said, so that we despaired of life itself. They didn't think they were going to live through the experience. Whatever they were going on, going through in Asia was so overwhelming and so hard, so bad, that Paul didn't think that they were going to live through it. It was more than they can handle. Verse 9, he says, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. Who raises the dead? There are many hard things that we face. Nothing will be as hard as bringing someone back from the dead. We rely on God. We rely on someone who's already proven He can do that. In comparison to raising Jesus from the dead, whatever hardship we're going through is no big deal for God. See, self-reliance is just pride. It's just pride. What does pride do to us? Well, Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. See, pride and self-reliance are going to keep me from being trained by my hardships. We're all going to suffer. We're all going to go through hard things. Not everybody's going to profit from them. You want to waste the hardship you're going through and get nothing out of it but lumps and bumps and hurts? Let pride drive you. Be self-reliant. If I do that, it's going to keep me from sharing in God's holiness and that's going to keep me from seeing God or experiencing righteousness and peace. Paul learned to rely on God instead of himself. In fact, he talks about it in a couple different places. In 2 Corinthians 3.5, he says, we don't have the right to claim that we've done anything on our own. God gives us what it takes to do what we do. Sounds like he had learned something about not relying on himself. He goes on, and this one's a very popular verse I think we all know. Philippians 4.13, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, Paul learned to rely on God instead of himself, but you realize that it took hardships and troubles so extreme that Paul thought it was going to kill him in order to get him to that place. Without the hardships and the troubles that Paul faced, he might not have been able to make those statements. So I can handle hardships through him, and I can even profit from them when I stop relying on myself and I let God have his way. 
you realize that's what we're talking about, is letting God have his way. What is God doing through these hardships? He's making us more like Jesus. Romans 8, 28 and 29. I'm going to pull it up here real quick so I don't misquote it. I have too many different translations working in my head at the same time, and so I butcher everything I try to recite, it seems. You get half King James, half NIV, <laughs> something else. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. One of the real shortfalls in the Christian communities that I've been a part of is we never read verse 29 along with this. We all know this verse, 28. God works good for those who love him through all things. Whatever hardships you're facing this morning, God will work something good from it. But look at what verse 29 says. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He's making us like Jesus. One of the things that I've tried to learn is to stop asking, why me? Why me is probably not an appropriate question for a Christian. I think God has already answered that. Why this, I think, is probably a perfectly fine question to ask. But if we're children, then God is going to use hardships to discipline us and train us like a father does. And we're going to have to get pride out of the way for that to happen. Lastly, I can handle hardships through him and profit from them when I surrender my will for God's purposes. There's a surrender that has to take place. A lot of times we want to come to Jesus because of what we think he's going to do for us as if he's working for us. I don't want to ad-lib too much. I'm tempted to go off and talk about that too much, but I'll take way too much time. But you know it's true. We tend in Christian circles to talk about God like he's all for us, it's all about us, and he's there to help us. But God has his purposes. And his purposes are not always the same as my purposes. And I'm going to have hardship. It's a guarantee. But I can not only handle them through him and profit from them. But I can only do that whenever I surrender my will to God's purposes. Second Corinthians 12, 7 through 4, or 7 through 10. We're talking Paul again here. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, conceited is pride, right? So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he had been given a lot of information. He says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Familiar passage to a lot of us. The big question that everybody asks about this question, about this verse, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? 
What do you think? Nobody knows for sure. But some scholars think, well, some scholars think it was eye problems, that he had a physical ailment of some sort. Other scholars think, and I think they might, I mean, I lean towards this, that it was the people in Ephesus, the problems that he mentioned having in Asia, it was the people in Ephesus who were opposing him that were the thorn in the flesh. Both Jews, which were his own people, and Gentiles who were worshiping false gods. Paul had a horribly hard time in Ephesus. I think it's the in in 1 Corinthians 15.32, he refers to fighting wild beasts in Ephesus. I think he was talking about these people. I don't think he literally got into an arena with wild beasts. I think that, and, and there's... I could bore you with the details as to why that was a common phrase and a common way of talking about things in his day. I think he's talking about people. Some scholars even believe that Paul was actually in prison in Ephesus. He was there longer than any other place that he went to. He was there for almost three years. Some people believe it was because he couldn't leave. It's not recorded anywhere. There are tantalizing statements throughout Scripture that if you connect the dots, it could mean that he was actually imprisoned. What we do know for sure is that Paul had a rough time in Ephesus. A really, really rough time in Ephesus. On his way back to Rome after his third missionary journey, you know, he had collected money for the, the Christians in Jerusalem who were starving under a famine and all that stuff. He comes back and he stops at Miletus and asks for the elders of the Ephesian church to come meet him there rather than going into Ephesus. I think it's because he thought... Getting into Ephesus is going to be a lot easier than getting back out. Ephesus was hard on him, and I think that the thorn in his flesh was probably people. And the lack of looking strong and feeling strong, feeling competent. He he wasn't allowed that while he was in Ephesus. We don't know for sure if that's true. I think it's likely, but we don't know if if all that is true. But what we do know is why he was given the thorn. It was to keep him from becoming conceited. That's what he said in verse 7. Next question that we ought to ask in this passage is, what are the weaknesses? Because we're looking at, we're trying to apply this to us, right? Do we have thorns in the flesh? Messengers from Satan? Sure we do. We don't always have the very same thing, but we can identify with what Paul's saying. Well, what are our weaknesses? Because apparently weaknesses show off the power of Christ. He actually works through our weaknesses, is what Paul says. What were his weaknesses? Well, it's probably his inability to handle the hardships on his own. He couldn't overcome the oppressors, which made him look, and not only look weak, but to feel weak. Paul had a habit where he would go, he was a Jew, a Jew among Jews. And wherever he would go on his missionary journeys, every town that he would go to, there was usually a synagogue or at least a small group of Jews. And he would go to them first. I think you had to have 10 Jews in the city to have a synagogue. If there were less than that, they'd usually meet by a river or someplace. But Paul would always start off by going to his own people, people who already knew the backstory. And then he'd try to tell them everything that we've learned, everything that we've experienced as a people has come to this point. And he would try to reach out to them. And often as not, they rejected him. Many of them did accept him. But in Ephesus, 
the synagogue is turned on him big. How does that make you look to the rest of the Ephesians, to the Gentiles in the area, when this Jew isn't accepted by other Jews, when he's being hunted and hounded and harassed? And now whenever this Jew is getting into my wallet by saying that the statues I'm making and making money off of, this is where I make my money and get my living, or the books on magic that I write or sell, that this is all phony baloney. He's costing me money. How does now you feel? How do you feel about this guy who's rejected by even by his own people? Letting Paul look and feel weak, letting Paul face humiliation of rejection and probably being put in prison in Ephesus was somehow part of how Jesus was able to grow a powerful church there. The church in Ephesus was strong and it grew. And Paul left Timothy there to help preach and teach and shepherd that, that crowd. Paul himself had to leave. How do you think that made Paul feel? How would it make you feel? But Jesus worked through the weaknesses. Paul wanted to look and feel strong, I'm sure. I mean, that's probably why he was asking three times, please take the thorn in the flesh away. But he surrendered to God's will. He surrendered his own will for God's purposes. Not only that, but he also said that he was content to do it. In verse 10, he says, I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. In Philippians 4.12, Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content. How many of us wish that we knew the secret of being content? Yeah, yeah, I'm not there yet. Uh, I'm working on it, and I think that there's some insight as to what this secret is. He says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. I think the secret to being content is to want God's will done more than mine. Will God do His will? Yes. Is God's will good? Yes. The secret to being content is trusting that God is good and that His will being done is worth me surrendering what I want for what I'm going through for what He's doing. I may not understand it. I don't know how a chronic disease brings glory to God. I don't know the specific doesn't mean that it doesn't. I don't know how what you're going through is going to bring glory to God. But I know that it can. I know that's how God works. And we've just looked at the passages that make us believe that, right? And get this. Paul said this in Romans 8, 18. This is how he looked at it. Now, we've already established Paul went through it, right? I mean, he went through more than most of us are going to go through. But look at his attitude. He says in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul looked at hardships differently. He knew it was purchasing something. It was building something. It was transforming him and making him more like Jesus. It was worth it. It was bringing peace. Do you see righteousness and peace in that statement? Yeah, I think so. Paul learned how to be content. He learned how to 
rely on God and not himself. And when it was all said and done, he said, it's worth it. It's not even worth comparing what I've gone through for what God's doing. I hope that we get to the place where we can look at hardships this way. God won't give you more than you can handle as an incomplete statement. And as an incomplete statement, it's cliche and it's not helpful. It can actually help bring about ideas that are false about God, about ourselves, about what the good life is. And it can cripple us when we go through things that are too hard to handle on our own. If you add two words to that statement, all of a sudden it starts to make a whole lot of sense. God won't give me more than I can handle through Him. And there's every reason to be excited about what He's doing. And whatever we face is worth it for His will to be done. Let's pray and end it. Father, uh, we want to thank You for all that You're doing for us. We don't understand how You use the different hardships that we're facing for Your purposes. But we want to thank You for letting us know that You are nonetheless using them. Father, uh, it's amazing to think about it, but no pain, no struggle that we ever go through is ever wasted or pointless whenever we're yours. No one else in the world can say that. Everybody has pain and struggle. Everybody goes through hardships, but we're the only ones who get to profit from them and have resurrection power enabling us to handle the hardships we go through. Father, help us to be a people who stop asking, why me? It's okay to ask, why this? But Father, help us to remember that you've already told us the answer to why me. You've told us it's because we're being transformed into the image of Jesus. Help us to look at that like Paul did, to say, whatever we're going through isn't worth comparing to that. It far outweighs what we're paying Father, we are a self-reliant and prideful people in so many ways. We want to work on our strength. We want to work at, we want to work in our own strength in ways that we don't even think about, in ways we haven't even realized yet. We haven't picked up on how self-reliant we tend to act. So Father, I'm asking you to help us to learn how to let you work through us. Father, I pray that you'll defeat pride and grant us humility. Father, we also ask that you please help us to learn the secret of contentment that Paul talked about. Help us to be resigned to your will, to surrender our will and let you have your way in every detail of our lives. We really do want your kingdom to come. and We want your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.